Okay, so good morning everyone. Seems that like we have more monks and nuns than the lay people. And I thought the retreat in Janna Grove has ended. Okay, I think they are coming in slowly. So welcome everyone, including the lovely nuns and the lovely monks from Bodhiana. Um, and of course, the teachers as well. And the lay people. We have fourfold assembly today. Very exciting. Um, okay, so let me just quickly go through um, the usual stuff. So as usual, we will continue the first session from now until 10, 15, 10, 30. Then we'll break for lunch. Um, and we'll be back at 12 o'clock for the ones who are here attending in person. That's when we will do a group discussion from 12 to 12.30. Those who are joining us online, you can join back at 12.30. That's when we would start the second session um, live streaming. Um, as usual, we will um, allow the teachers to teach and then when they pause, um, they'll do a five minutes meditation. Then after that, um, they'll take questions. And usually we'll take three questions, so perhaps if you have asked your questions for the day, then leave the opportunity for some others who have not asked any questions. Um, we are also doing a fundraising for Bante Sujato, so we've started to do the fundraising at the start of this workshop. So if any one of you would still like to um, put a donation into our donation box here, uh, if you don't see the box, come and see me because I have to carry the box with me everywhere I go. Um, otherwise, online, I have provided um, the bank details as well. And we are raising funds to cover for his FS, which we have already raised enough. But any additional will go towards Suda Central. Additionally, we've put out a small notice out there um, that has a QR code. Um, and anyone who wants to make a donation to Suda Central, uh, please do so. And if you have problem, Doing it, you can come and approach me. Like I think last week there was one lady who couldn't get it done, so I actually helped her. Um, and yes, please donate generously to support Bante Sujato and the great work that he's doing um, in Suda Central because I'm very sure all of us would have benefited in, um, in so many ways. So with that, let me hand over to the teachers and very grateful to have this very last workshop. So hopefully we are all liberated after this. Thank you. <laughs> Oops, okay. It's not working? I've got Hello. Ah. How do you turn it on? The one at here. The bottom here. Yes, the yeah. one at the bottom. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Oh. Okay, it's definitely on now, that's for sure. <laughs> Okay, so good morning everyone, <laughs> welcome once again, and uh, today is, I'm sad to say, the last one of these workshops, uh, so I'm not sure if that's good or bad, we shall, good, bad, who knows, I think is the, uh, the right answer. So we're going to continue today on uh, these uh, topics that we have uh, been looking at. Yeah? Put it there? Okay, yeah. Well, I don't read it. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. So, I'm going to carry on with these topics. And the, uh, we have looked in quite a bit of detail at the idea of right knowledge. And today we're going to focus on the idea of right liberation. 
And uh, so that's kind of going to be exciting because the word liberation itself is like a beautiful word, in my opinion. The idea of being free from something, uh, liberated from something. Uh, and we're going to discuss, first of all, a little bit about what this is about. Uh, and uh, so we're going to just, uh, let's just fire away. Welcome Please, welcome, welcome to the country. Yeah. Ah, okay. Thanks. Please, yeah. So we're just going to, before we start, yeah. we're just going to invite Ryan uh, to give us a welcome to country. You need a microphone? Oh, You're all right. Are we right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, for the folks online, it's probably a good idea, do you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah um, there you go. There you got it. Kaya Wanju Wajak We're Buddhism Court. Hello and welcome to Wajak Country and the Heart of Buddhism. Um, I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians who are the rightful carers and uh, owners of this land, and I pay respects to them, past, present, and future. The Wajak people you're saying, and you are Wajak as well, right? Wajak Manang. Okay, very good. Okay. Thank you. So I'm not really Australian, I forget about these kind of things. So that uh, shows you I'm still a bit of education to go, so that's, that's good. Um, so we're going to look at the idea of right liberation, and I'm going to just start off by looking at the John, that's why we have to do mm -hmm. workshops more regularly so that we have our setup perfectly done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, hinting, all right. hinting. So, to, just to start off, we're going to look again at the uh, kind of the, uh, the place of right liberation, how it fits in with the other factors of the path. Uh, the causality that leads to it, and then what is the purpose of right liberation. I don't know if we need to talk about the purpose of right liberation. It seems kind of obvious, but it's useful to do that briefly anyway, I think. And uh, so let's start off the place of liberation on the path. Yeah? And uh, we have seen this now many times. I'm briefly going to kind of go over it again. So this is the tenfold, so-called tenfold path, and as I mentioned earlier on, it's not really a tenfold path at all. It's an eightfold path with two results. That's really what it is about. Uh, so it starts off with right view. Uh, yeah, it goes through all the various factors, uh, comes to right stillness, uh, and this is really where we started this particular workshop, uh, showing the end point of the noble eightfold path, uh, why that is so important to give rise to right knowledge, uh, which is sama nyana. And this is what we have been looking at the last three uh, workshops, uh, and from the idea of right knowledge, that is where we get the idea of right liberation, right? It arises from right knowledge. Uh, so why is that the case? What is really the, uh, the connection here between right knowledge and right liberation? Why does it matter to have right knowledge? Uh, and the basic idea is that if you have knowledge of something, if you understand something, you can make decisions based on that understanding. Uh, and this is true in all walks of life. When you think about it, if you know something, if you have an insight into something, if you understand the way things work, 
then you can make good decisions. That's why we have science to understand the universe, so we can make good decisions about technology, about how the climate change, or whatever, to understand nature means you have the ability to do something about it. And it's exactly the same thing on the Buddhist path. Understanding means good decisions. And of course, because understanding in this case is essentially about suffering and happiness, it means you can make good decisions about suffering and happiness. Which is kind of nice, isn't it? That's kind of useful, yeah? Because that's kind of what all humanity is about, uh, trying to find satisfactory solutions and solutions that lead to contentment, etc. And there is, of course, in the world, it's very common to talk about the importance of knowledge. That's why we have an education system, yeah? The idea that knowledge sets you free or something like that. And of course, there's some truth to that. But what we talk about here is obviously a different kind of knowledge. And this, because it is different, it sets you free in an entirely different kind of way. Because this is about the inner knowledge of seeing things in the right way. It is about the direct, immediate knowledge. So it's certain in a way that ordinary knowledge is not. And for that reason, it also has the ability to, it gives you an insight that makes your ability to make very good and precise decisions about what to do with your life. Now you may wonder, of course, what do you mean by decisions? Yeah, because normally in life we know something and we make decisions based on that knowledge. But here we're talking about the spiritual practice. And here the decision-making is not so much a deliberate decision-making. It's more just like the mind making decision on its own. right? So when you see that there is a problem, when you see suffering, when you see happiness, it is automatic for the mind to move towards happiness because that's what the mind wants. Yeah? It's an automatic reaction within. So the decision-making here is not so much a deliberate thing as just an automatic movement of the mind coming from this idea of right knowledge. Once you understand, the mind goes there by itself like a well-trained dog and just goes following the right way. So um, this is the idea of right liberation at the end. And then we, you are liberated. And what is this idea of liberation? And I think that uh, Straight away, the idea of liberation is a very positive thing, right? Everyone wants to be free. No one wants to be a slave. The opposite of being liberated is either being a slave or it is like being in prison, right? These are kind of the two opposites of liberation. So basically, we are all slaves, yeah? We're all in prison to some extent. And this is a very nice way of thinking about the idea of liberation or freedom, that we are giving up something that actually confines you in a very, very big way. What is this confinement? And uh, the way that the suttas talk about this actually is a word for confinement in the suttas, or, or a word that is often translated as confinement, I should say, and that is the word sambada. And if you look at these uh, suttas, uh, you will see that the first sambada, uh, what is that, the most basic sambada? It is the five sense world, right? You are confined by the five sense world. And so right here and now, when because we are all experiencing the five sense world, we are all in prison. We are all in confinement. We are all slaves to a certain way of looking at the world. And we cannot escape that. So the first liberation on the Buddhist path is a freedom from the enslavement and the freedom of the prison of the five senses. And once you are free from that, then you gain samadhi, 
And then from the Buddhist point of view, even that samadhi has another kind of confinement. Yeah? And the ultimate confinement in samadhi, there's a number of ways you can look at this. You can look at the various factors of the various stages of samadhi. Each factor is a kind of confinement. But the final confinement is the sense of self. Yeah? That is the kind of real confinement that comes after the five uh, the five senses, because the sense of self it what is what imprisons us in attaching to things in the world, imprisons us in a small sense of ego, who we are, imprisons us in, 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 in all of these, um, um, in, in so many ways, yeah, to, to do things, to act in the world, because we identify with the doer. We don't understand that actually doing itself is part of the problem. So the, the last kind of liberation is a liberation from the sense of self, which then allows you the final freedom uh, where the mind kind of expands fully. Uh, so liberation is, first of all, the elimination of the five senses. Uh, then it is the idea of the expansive mind in samadhi. Uh, and finally, it is the uh, deliverance or the liberation from the sense of self, uh, which gives rise to so many of the confinements in the world, the attachments, the identity, all of th these things that actually narrow us down in a very problematic sense. And the ultimate liberation then is, of course, the liberation from suffering itself, uh, which is the whole endpoint of the Buddhist path. All of these things can really be summarized uh, as suffering, in a way, liberation from suffering here. So I just want to... Uh, continue this idea of this process of liberation in a little bit more detail. I'm going to come. I'm going to. This is going to be a lot of a bit of rehashing. These are some of the ideas that have been talked about in quite a bit of detail by Venerable Sunya before, uh, and he has probably already done a good enough uh, job already. But uh, that doesn't mean I won't repeat it. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to repeat it. Uh. So, uh, <laughs> so this is a dependent liberation sequence. Very important sequence. We saw, looked at it from the beginning before. Uh, now I'm going to start just kind of halfway down, or actually two two thirds down, uh, with the idea of samadhi, which is stillness, uh, right? Uh, so this is where this kind of is based from. Stillness is the requirement for what? For knowing and seeing things according to reality. Uh, yeah, and we have discussed this already in great detail. One of the points we made was that seeing, knowing, and seeing things in accordance with reality is knowing the three characteristics of existence. Yeah, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Yeah, the three characteristics of existence. Now you will notice that one of the things that you see there is dukkha. You see suffering here. Yeah, because you see suffering, what happens is this. Sorry, can I interrupt? Please, you must. must interrupt. Sorry, can we, can we go back to the previous point? Uh, I guess we can. How do you do that? Yeah. Uh, do this. Yeah. Yeah, okay. There you go. Beautiful. Yeah. Lovely. Excellent. Uh, look, uh, yeah, just just uh, just a quick question uh, from a translation point of view. You've got yeah. like according to reality for Yatabhuta. and uh, yeah, I was just wondering like what your thoughts about that are, like how um, how like it seems to be one of those terms which, on the one hand, carries a significant philosophical weight. Yeah. But which, on the other hand, seems to be a fairly ordinary language term, and so whether how much sort of philosophical loading you want to put on the translation. So when when I translated, I tr I think I translated yeah. just as truly. Truly, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which sort of backs off on the philosophical weight of it. Yeah. You yeah. know, but whereas more yeah. literally, like in dependent origination, it seems to be yata bhuta is more understood literally as bhuta midam, like it's literally understood in accordance with how things have been conditioned. Yeah. 
right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Which is a much more philosophically freighted way of yeah. understanding it. Yeah. So I'm just wondering what your yeah, thoughts are about that. That's an interesting point because when you say according to reality, it sounds right. like you have this overview of the whole world and you have too much understanding. Right. But actually, that's not what they care. What is the case is that whatever you're looking at, whatever you focus yeah. on, you see that in the right way. Yeah. So knowing and seeing truly, I think that actually is yeah. a sensible, uh, sounds like a sensible like, translation. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, the vineyard as well yeah. as Bhutas Ming means also if, it, if it's true. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. But yeah. then it also has that philosophical sense. Yeah. You know, so you could say knowing and seeing as it has been conditioned. Knowing and seeing as it has been conditioned. Uh, yeah. But that is precisely the point that you're not seeing as conditioned. You're seeing it, in, seeing it uh, devoid of the previous conditions. Isn't that the whole point here? Is well, independent you origination. You know, independent origination, you're, you're, you're sorry. Right. Okay. and seeing according yeah. to conditions, yeah. right? Okay, all right. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? Mm. I think my microphone has no battery. <laughs> yes. Oh, there it is, sorry. It does have battery. Oh, beautiful. Um, I've never had a problem with as it really is or according to reality. I think some people might... Yeah. make that into something really big or something, but to me it just means you see things as they are as opposed to how you imagine them to be. As they are, as they always have been, and they always will be. Is that right? No, as opposed to what, what you imagine, not, not as they... As opposed to how you imagine, right, yeah. 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 Okay, okay. Mm. Just, just curious. Yeah, it's, but it's also interesting what uh, we mean by. I mean, what do we mean by the word reality anyway? Here, right. I think the. I mean, there's obviously degrees of insight here. The first insight when you come out of samadhi would be a lesser kind of insight. It would not won't be a complete insight. Uh, but when the insight is complete, maybe you can say according to reality. So yeah. when it kind of ends up with stream entry or whatever, well, then it's closer to that. That's uh, right. I mean, yeah. usually it is stream entry, right? Yatabhut and Yanadasana is typically stream entry in the right. sutras. Yeah. Yeah. In which case, it may be. Uh, Maybe in accordance with dependent origination. Yeah. But it could also mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be that, because here we're just saying what happens as a consequence of samadhi. It could be that you need a bit of knowing and seeing before it leads to stream entry. I don't know. It's in the... Um, yeah. Sorry, guys. But in the, uh, <laughs> in the, what is it, the Kilesa Sanghuta, where then it kind of defines like the difference, like Yutabhut and Yanadasana is specifically stream entry. Same in the Sabhasava Sutta as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Anyway, okay good. Yeah. Just, just okay. wondering if there was any venerables had any thoughts about that, but yeah, no, that's good. Huh? Let us proceed. Yeah, let us proceed. Okay. Um, okay. So, the idea here is that seeing things truly in accordance with reality. Yeah, one of those. Uh, not, not sure. <laughs> when you do that, uh, of course, again, what you see is dukkha, and because you see dukkha, yeah, that's not nice. <laughs> Right? So it means that you have a sense of aversion. Aversion really is an English word, which doesn't mean anger. Usually it's translated, people seem to think it's synonymous with anger, but it's not. Aversion means that you have a strong dislike of something. You want to push it away. It's the opposite of desire. That's what aversion is. Aversion can lead to ill will and anger, but it isn't used in the dictionary definition anyway. It does not actually mean anger or ill will. It means a rejection of something. And because you see dukkha, you reject things. You have aversion, you have nibida, as you see here is the Pali word, uh, translated by Bhante Sujato as um, disillusionment. Uh, some people translate as, as disenchantment, which I think maybe is too weak. Uh, aversion, Ajahn Brahm has translated it previously as repulsion or even revulsion. Yeah, you cannot, because it's a strong feeling of turning away from something, and in some contexts it actually means that. So it's a 
term with many nuances, depending a bit on context, what it actually means. Uh, but it's a turning away from dukkha, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, so you turn away from dukkha, you have this aversion or disillusionment with the world, uh, and then uh, what happens then? Well, if you don't like the world, you don't like all of these things, uh, then what happens is that you lose interest in them. This is dispassion. Uh, Dispassion is a word which basically is anti-craving, right? But because anti-craving is not found in a dictionary, we use dispassion instead. So viraga or raga is a synonym for tanha in the suttas, yeah, both meaning craving. Viraga is the opposite. You let go because you have no interest anymore. And letting go means the ending of craving. That's essentially what it means. And from that ending of craving, that is when you are liberated. You have vimutti. And when you are liberated, this is the last term in the sequence, you have the knowledge and vision of liberation. This is the end point here of the sequence. So you are liberated from craving, yeah. yeah. So the again, the idea is that the, you come out of the prison of craving. Yeah. This implies the ending of the self-delusion. It implies the ending of craving for the sensual things in the world. So all of these imprisonments uh, that we were talking about before, you are liberated from all of those things. Uh, and that is the liberation on this path. Uh. And of course, the interesting thing here is that it ends in knowledge and vision of liberation, not actually Liberation. What's the connection between the two? In many suttas you find both liberation and also the knowledge and vision of liberation. These are two aspects of the same kind of insight. When you are liberated, you know that you are liberated. Vimuttasming vimuttang itinyanang hoti is the Pali phrase. In that liberation, when you are liberated, you know that you are liberated. So this is really the end point. Yeah? When you have that insight, the understanding, Liberation doesn't happen, oh, I'm not sure, maybe I'm liberated or not. No, you know that you're liberated. Yeah? So if someone has any doubts, well, that's, you know, you're still in prison, basically. So that's the idea. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we have looked at this in detail before, but that's kind of the main idea there. Bante. Sorry, can I propose a hypothesis? Please. Okay, so knowing and seeing according to reality, according to this hypothesis, mm. that's stream entry, right? Why do you call it a hypothesis, though? Well, uh, we ha you, haven't, uh, you haven't heard the full unveiling of the, the scope of the hypothesis yet. So then, then Nibida, right? Mm -hmm. Greed and hate are in the process of disappearing. Dispassion, greed and hate are gone. Viraga is liberation. So this is stream entry, once return, non-return, and arahant. I think that's cool. That's, uh, to, to use a phrase you always use, over-determination, Bhante. Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cooking the books? I, I, I th yeah, I think it's more, more fluid than that. <laughs> <laughs> right? There's so, a pattern there, though, isn't there? There is a pattern there, yeah. yeah. It's, probably, it's obviously related to that somehow, yeah. so I would, I would, yeah, yeah. Sonia's ticking away there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree that knowing and seeing uh, accurately, how about that? Accurately. accurately, yeah, accurately. That's yeah. what I have used in the past. Knowing, seeing accurately is stream entry in this sutta, and knowledge and vision of liberation is arahant. Yeah. And I wouldn't uh, equate aversion to uh, uh, one's returning. One's returning, yeah, one's returning. But they are in between, obviously, yeah. one's returning and non-returning, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's weirdly persuasive. 
Anyway, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, don't want to hold you up with my with But I like accurately is nice because accurate you want to, yeah. want to put these things into a natural language that people can understand. It's good, actually. Yeah. Mm. This is one of Wendable Studios' great kind of ideas. Not ideas, great abilities to make things really clear in good language. If you want, have time, look at some of his translations. They're quite nice, actually. I don't necessarily agree in every single case, but uh, of course I don't, ah, actually. <laughs> of course I don't, because it's impossible to always agree. But... Uh, it's, uh, it's really good. It's really nice translation. So, it's uh, true, yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's carry on. So what comes next? The purpose of liberation. Why bother be liberated, right? Uh, so what does the Buddha say? Uh, he says, the, what is the purpose of freedom? I'm using different words here. That's a bit silly. Vimutti. Yeah? Why? Well, we've already been talking about the idea of getting out of prison, uh, becoming free from slavery, which are things you find in the suttas in a number of places. Uh, that's already good enough in many ways. Uh, but the, the purpose here, here is uh, that it is extinguishment. Yeah? And uh, so if you are interested in the idea of Nibbana, well, this is uh, the idea of Nibbana. That's why you want to be liberated, because it is Nibbana. That is not a very helpful, right? Because what does Nibbana mean anyway? But this is what the sutta says. And then comes the next question, which is very interesting. What is the purpose of Nibbana? <laughs> right? This is kind of exciting, because from so many of the things we've heard about so far in this workshop, the idea of Nibbana is quite challenging. So it better have a good purpose, yeah, if it is so challenging. Otherwise, we have a problem. Now, I have some bad news for you. This is the bad news. Too much text, as I would oh. say, but that's true. But Too many the, words. the holy, holy life is lived with extinguishment as its goal, extinguishment as its aim, with extinguishment as its conclusion. So in other words, it doesn't really go beyond the idea of extinguishment. This is what we're trying to achieve. So how can we understand the idea of extinguishment in a way that kind of makes sense to us? A lot of the things I was, I was saying to, we were just discussing this yesterday or the day before, I can't remember now, one of these days with Bhante Siddhartha, and he said, and this, I think it's a very important point, uh, that you, know, you have to be careful not to traumatize people with too much deep dhamma sometimes, you know? <laughs> because some of this deep dhamma is actually very challenging. And if the first time you hear it, it's like, what? You, uh, why, you know, I'm not a Buddhist anymore, sorry, I'm getting out of here, this is crazy stuff. Uh, and I can understand that. And I remember myself being a young monk, uh, and I was discussing with Adam Sudrata the meaning of Nibbana, whatever, eternalism, annihilationism, cessation, all these kind of things. And he said to me, oh yeah, it's probably, you know, cessation is obviously the right way of thinking about this. And that really shocked me at the time. I was still so young, I didn't really understand what was going on. So he is the one who actually kind of got me on the right track early on. So thank you very much, Manta. <laughs> got you on A-track Got anyway. me A-track anyway. Oh. I, I reckon it's a good track, yeah. <laughs> And I, I remember monks in our monastery, monks who were around, very intelligent, very sharp, very clear about the, you know, what was going on. And after a year of listening to Ajahn Brahm, they would say, oh wow, now I understand. It means cessation. Yeah, it took them, they had to listen to Ajahn Brahm, 20 talks, every talk he would say the same thing, until eventually the penny drops. Mm. Because our conditioning is so strong that even if you have that kind of interest in the Dhamma, actually it is difficult. So we should not traumatize people too much. That's kind of my, my point here. So what is the anti-trauma, right? And this is the anti-trauma. Extinguishment is the highest happiness. Yeah? That sounds nice. This is taken from the Dhammapada. It's one of these beautiful uh, Nibbanang Paramang Sukang you find in the, in, the, in the Dhammapada. And you find it also elsewhere as well in the suttas. And this, to me, is really what it comes down to. Uh, because all of the other things can be misunderstood. Uh, all the other things are 
difficult to take, but this is something you can understand, and this is something that I think makes sense to everyone here. So if you take anything away from the idea of liberation and extinguishment or whatever, it is the highest happiness, the highest contentment, the highest satisfaction, the highest compassion, the highest everything really, of all good qualities that you can possibly have. Yeah? And this is kind of a, to my mind, beautiful way of thinking about the Dhamma. This is why it is really worthwhile. This is how everyone can relate to these profound ideas. So thank you for your critique, Bhante Siddhartha. At least it kind of got me a little bit back on uh, onto the keeping things real. Uh. So um, I'll talk a little bit more before I pass it on to Bhante Siddhartha and Venerable Sunyo. Um, not too much more. Uh. What is right liberation? Uh? What does it mean? How does, uh, what is it as an experience, if you like? Uh, yeah? What actually is going on? And to understand this, I'm going to look at two concepts found in the suttas, uh, Chaita Vimutti and Panya Vimutti. Uh. Chaita Vimutti is like liberation of the mind. Panya Vimutti is liberation through wisdom. Yeah, so two different ideas. How are they related to each other? Now, you find on the end of the path, when you become an Arahant, it is always said that you are Chaita Vimutti and Panya Vimutti. Yes? The Arahant has both of these. But what is the relationship between them? What do they mean? And this will give us some idea of what liberation actually refers to when you find it in the suttas, uh, vimutti, liberation, freedom. Uh. So, chaito vimutti means liberation of the mind. Uh, yeah? The mind is somehow liberated. Uh. What does it mean to come out of the prison? What are these uh, states that are out of the prison? Well, the first states that are always called chaito vimutti in the suttas is the brahma viharas, uh, yeah? the divine abidings. Uh. And uh, they are liberation in the sense that uh, they overcome certain qualities of the mind that feel like entrapments, that feel like confinements. In the Brahma Viharas, the chitta, the mind is mahagata, it's gone great. Yeah, it is a large mind. All limitations in the mind have been left behind. All defilements that were there are gone. The mind is entirely pure and entirely without boundaries. The idea of boundaries is very fundamental to the idea of the Brahma Viharas. Yeah, because very often in the world we have boundaries. I like this monk. I like this one as well, actually. And this one. Okay, that doesn't work. I was going to find a monk I didn't like, but actually, there's no, I don't think the, and the nuns as well over there. Yeah. So, but sometimes it's like we divide the world into those people we like and we don't like. We have boundaries and limitations. Brahma Viharas are boundless states without any kind of limitations. You overcome limitations and you overcome these. Uh, obstacles in the mind. That's why there are liberations of the mind. Yeah? This is what the idea of liberation means. Uh, you overcome an obstacle. Yeah. A fourth jhana is the same thing. It's called the Chaito Vimutti in the suttas. And by implication, we can say that all the jhanas are a kind of Chaito Vimutti. And again, because you overcome certain obstacles. The main obstacle in the first jhana is the hindrances and the senses. And then there are further obstacles you overcome as you go along. Yeah? The main thing is always the defilements of the mind. is the main obstacle that you overcome. Yeah? Arahantship is the last one, which is called Chaito Vimutti. Yeah? Yeah? So in this sense, liberation of the mind means the ending of defilements. The defilements no longer being there. Yeah? But the problem, of course, with the ending of defilements, that can happen temporarily or permanently. Yeah? 
So Chaitavimutti itself does not mean arahantship. It can mean something less than that. Uh, to actually get to arahantship, you have to add something more to the formula. And that is Panyavimutti. And that is the liberation uh, through insight or through vision. Uh, what have I said? Wisdom. Wisdom, right. Sorry, sorry. Uh, wisdom. Insight or wisdom. Uh, and so this is the liberation that happens because you have seen things truly or, uh, or accurately, or what are the various translations, according to reality, whatever, however you want to f say things. Uh, and because of that, you're liberated because you understand that actually uh, when you undermine the very sense of self and these fundamental delusions in the mind, uh, that is where uh, these, these defilements are gone for good. Uh, and for that reason, Panyavamutti is also equal to Arahantship. Uh, yeah? And uh, it includes the idea of Chaitavimutti, because when you see these things profoundly, the sense of self is the source of all the defilements, so all the defilements also disappear. So the mind is liberated from precisely the same kind of defilements as they are in Samadhi, as they are in the jhana states. So as an Arahant, you have these two liberations. They always go together. They're always part of Arahantship. You're both Panyavimutti and Chaitavimutti. And because you are Chaitavimutti, it means that your jhanas and all the states of samadhi, they are available to you like that. There's nothing there to hinder you from these things. And so the arahant is the person who always has access to these particular states of mind. So this is the two sides of liberation in the suttas. Liberation that comes from insight, liberation that comes from freedom from the defilements. And these are always paired together in this way, especially for arahantship. So, I think that is all I would like to say. So, I'm going to pass, maybe have a short meditation and then we can pass it on to uh, whoever wants to take over the uh, baton, as they say here.
Okay, everyone, so let us carry on, as they say. So maybe we have time for a couple of questions, a couple of quick ones, say hi. So if anyone would like to say anything, please. Yeah, please fire away. You could just get the. Yeah. But uh, sometimes there are proponents, uh, uh, I think uh, they point out some sutra that uh, uh, straight away become Chetavimukti and they, oh, sorry, Panyavimukti, and then from there they get to the Chetavimukti and develop that path after the Arahanship. They, I think, yeah. uh, promote especially the, what is the sutra, the spy who came to seal and became an Arahant, Susima Sutta. Um, mm. uh, as is the is the biggest example that they put. What is yeah. your view, Ajahn, on that? My view is that that's uh, not correct. Uh, that's my view. <laughs> the Sasimba Sutta doesn't actually say what people wanted to say. It, it just says that you don't need the material attempts. That's really all it says. Uh, and that is true. Immaterial attempts are not actually part of the path, so of course you don't need them. Uh, uh, but the arahantship is always defined as having both Chetavimuti and Panyavimuti, uh, so you don't develop it afterwards. Uh, what you can develop afterwards are the immaterial attainments, uh, and the people who have both immaterial attainments and arahantship, they're called Ubatobhaga-vimuti, uh, 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 liberate in both ways. Ubatobhaga, Ubat was both, Bhaga is kind of parts, uh, so liberate in, in both parts, both ways. Uh, and so that, that is the one which is kind of more advanced, if you like, or has extra qualities to it. Uh, but Panyavimutti, Chetavimutti are always part of Arahantship. And Chetavimutti happens usually long before you get Panyavimutti. You have to have that Chetavimutti. This is what stillness is all about, right? Chetavimutti. You uh, have to have that before Panyavimutti can really happen. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, sometimes they also caught this wrongly again. I, I know you, you uh, busted that myth as well, but uh, again, that... Uh, Vimuktayatana Sutta. Ah, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. they quote. But it is very clear in those sajans, isn't it? Because it leads to, it says, uh, to yeah. joy and the bliss and then the stillness and then the uh, clear but mind. I'm all. always surprised at how people can quote these suttas without taking the whole thing into account because it's so obvious when you read it that actually samadhi is there. Everything is there as part of that sutta. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's not just listening to the teaching, actually it's going through the same sequence as everyone else. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Can I also ask that you used the word samba, the ad yeah. and um, I, I know Bhante Sujato's uh, translation is uh, um, confinement. I read that sutta somewhere, sutta nipat or udana somewhere, and uh, you also said finding an opening in the confinement, Bhante. Yeah. And um, yeah. is it the confinement or the barriers with barriers, samba? Sambada is often used in context with lay life. Lay life is sambada because you live in a house crowded with children. Huh? 
Yeah, so so we, I would say confinement is more direct, but obviously that confinement is also a barrier. So barrier is not wrong, yeah. but I think confinement to me sounds more like um, the actual meaning of that word is more closely related to that. I I think, yeah, yeah. All right. John, can I just take a quick question from? There, we have a ven one of the venerables over here would like to oh, ask sorry. question. Lehar, yeah. So, um, Ajahn Ramali, um, at the very start, uh, the right understanding um, and um, to be able to uh, make good decisions and um, um, lead to um, happiness rather than suffering. Yeah. And I was thinking just in terms of good decisions and um, in terms of um, living, you know, um, the life out there in, in the lay world. And um, that's a very mm. useful mm. asset to have, mm. to be able to make good decisions, uh, whether you're in business or, you know, whatever you're doing. Mm. It means, uh, to me, good decision actually equates to success right, yeah, out yeah. there. Of course it does, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then for us, yeah. for monastics, um, I'm thinking of um, good decisions in I even in living in community in, 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 a, in, a, in a monastery. Mm. Um, and um, having a good understanding um, and, um, you know, people interactions and, and, and such. Mm. And, um, you know, to, to, to be wise uh, about, um, um, I, I guess, um, especially interpersonal, interrelational skills. Mm. Um, and that also leads to a lot of um, yeah. happiness and away from yeah. suffering. Because... Yeah. Um, I feel that um, if um, if we have the skills, especially, I think it's a valuable skill to uh, skills to have to mm. to actually get along with people. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. Um, so um, mm. that could really reduce suffering. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the whole the kind of the uh, the main sort of uh, you know idea in the suit is about r right outlook leading to right decisions is actually samma ditti leading to samma sankappa. Yeah, that's the main one. This is just a subsidiary one, but the main one is right there. If you have samma ditti, you make good decisions. Samma sankappa is actually good decision making here. Yeah? yeah, good intentions, good aim, good goals, etc. So what it really means is that you want to have as much samma ditti as possible. That's why we read the suttas. That's why we have these workshops. That's why we do everything almost to get that samma ditti. And of course, once you have samma ditti, it Part of that is precisely having good interrelational or interpersonal skills. Means mostly it means having metta and compassion for your fellow monastics, right? That's one of the main aspects of that, and that comes out of the idea of samaditi leading to the right aim, etc. So, uh, yeah. Thank you. Maybe we should just carry on, Lehar. Yeah. Okay. Shall I take over, Arjan, for a while? All right, so I was warned, if you talk too much about deep ideas, then you chase people away, maybe. But for me, it's exactly the deep ideas that have always attracted me to Buddhism. And so I'm going to ignore the advice, <laughs> and I will talk about more deep ideas. And also, if I can't talk about deep ideas during a workshop on uh, dependent or, or on uh, right liberation, then when can I? So. If you don't want to listen, just plug your ears. If you do, then uh, open them up. So I want to talk about 
more about Nibbana, extinguishment. I talked about it a little bit last week, uh, briefly, mainly to show what it is not. And also mainly we talked about it in light of suffering and the end of suffering. However, there is another um, important and beautiful aspect in this metaphor of Nibbana, which is anatta, the absence of a self. So that's what I want to talk about. I came prepared. <laughs> That's the end of my talk. Here we go. Much more, much better. All right. So you probably already uh, envisioned what I was going to do. Once more. That is Nibbana. The going out of a flame. So I talked last week how that means cessation of things. But there is another aspect about it. When you have a flame, then there is nothing inside of it, you could say. It's not, not of an essence. It's just a process. I'm not sure exactly how fire works, but you've got like uh, heat and light, but nothing of that is um, a thing in itself. It does not have an essence. It's a process. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Okay, and so that connects to the idea of anatta as well. So the metaphor of a fire going out is not just about things ceasing. You could have, the Buddha could have used other metaphors for that. But what's so nice about fires, you use that for ceasing, is that you can see that they are sort of empty of any essence. You know, you can, you can see right through them, most of it. Yeah? And it's not, um, nothing in it. Not, not, doesn't have a solid core. And this is, what also is taught in the suttas. And here is an, a, a text from the Sutta Nipata, and I'll just uh, read it out. Upasiva, just as you cannot identify a flame that disappears, it's just a process that ends, blown out by a gust of wind, so you cannot identify a sage who at that disappears, liberated from mental phenomena. The idea here is that there is no, inside of any of you, or any being, there is no essence, there is no core. It's without a self, anatta, just processes happening. There's consciousness, there's feelings, there's decisions, there's thoughts and all these things, but they don't, are not owned by anybody, and they don't have an 
essence of themselves, just like the flame has no essence of itself. So even for the sage, the enlightened one, there is no real being that you can say, oh, this, is, this is the sage, you know? Just like you, you, you might be able to say, this is the lighter. But this is like a thing, but um, we are not things, we are like processes. That is the idea of anatta. And therefore the Buddha says, you cannot identify any sage as such. Does that make sense? Sorry, venerable? Cause and effect, that's another way to look at it, yeah. So, you cannot identify somebody who disappears at death, at parinibbana is what it means here. Liberated from mental phenomena. It uses mental phenomena because earlier in the sutta it already talks about getting um, liberated from other things. Upasiva, he did not really understand. So he asked to the Buddha, asked from the Buddha, they who disappear, do they not exist anymore? Or are they in an eternal state of well-being? Please explain this to me, O sage, for you have understood it. The idea is quite subtle here, but Upasiva is still identifying the enlightened being as somebody, like an I or a self or a they. And he wants to know what happens to that thing, that essence, that sage. Huh? So do, do they disappear? Are they annihilated? Huh? Do, do they not exist anymore? Or are they in an eternal state of well-being? Do they exist forever? And these are the two wrong views that we've already addressed in previous workshops. The view of annihilation, yeah, that something that truly exists uh, comes to an end, and the idea of eternalism. And then the Buddha explains. You cannot define they who disappeared, whatever you try to describe them by, it no longer exists. When everything is eradicated, or everything is uh, removed, all descriptions are eradicated as well. It's, it's um, a little bit of a cryptic sutta, I admit. That's also its verse, and verses can often be a bit more cryptic. So you have to put this in light of other suttas where it's explained more clearly, but I don't have the time to bring up all those suttas today. But uh, like the Yamaka Sutta, for example, you might want to look up. But the idea is that there is no real day, no real essence, no self that disappears. It's only processes that come to an end. Just like the flame, when it disappears, you cannot say the flame is destroyed, right? Would you say that, Venerable? The flame is destroyed when, I, when it goes out? No. So it's the same when, when an uh, enlightened process, <laughs> instead of enlightened being, an enlightened um, set of aggregates disappears, then it's also not a destruction of anything. And that is how the metaphor of an extinguished fire also implies anatta as well. Bhante, did you have anything to add to that sutta? Um, no, thanks for that. Just, just, just kind of, a, kind of comment on the uh, the use of define for uh, pamana, which also I've used in my translation. It's kind of a literal thing, right? So a pamana is literally to measure something. So you're kind of literally defining it, putting measurements around it. But it's also like like nibbana is 
also defined as apamana, uh, in the sense of measureless or immeasurable. And so that sense of like the great ocean is immeasurable and so on as well. So it has, it's not just a linguistic sense of not being able to define it, but it has a, has a sense of like being free from all the limitations. And the, the limitations are elsewhere described as being uh, basically greed, hatred and delusion, which are there, which are the things that are making of makers of limits. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, I've never thought about that before, but yeah, I immediately agree with that. It's, yeah. That's a nice way to look at it. Yeah. It? So you, you and then in, in a sense, it's those things that create, um, create like individuality. Like you become who you are because of all the... The, the craving. Yeah, all of that stuff, yeah. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, very nice. <clears throat> so, to explain this from a different perspective, and this is Bikuni uh, Vajira speaking, just as there is the word chariot for an assembly of parts, so there is a convention, a being, when there are the aspects of existence, the aggregates, the khandhas. Yeah, so you have a set of aggregates, you are all a set of aggregates, you could say. It's just a little bit of a Buddhist way of speaking, set of aggregates. Nobody else in the world understands what that means, but <laughs> I suppose you know what that means. So, but inside of that is not a you, not a being, not a self. Uh, it's only suffering that comes to be, only suffering that exists and vanishes. No self. Nothing but suffering comes to be, nothing but suffering ceases. So this is a picture of a modern chariot. <laughs> because I don't think you ever use any chariots anymore these days, but do you use these chariots, some of you? Yes. So the point here is that this chariot, or this, uh, what, what do you call them actually, shopping trolley, is just an assembly of different parts. Yeah, you've got here, uh, I just this from the, the internet. You've got a seat belt for a kid, a handle, leg hole, a rear wheel, front wheel, and many more other parts. But uh, if you take that apart, you, you cannot point to, oh, this is the shopping trolley, right? It is just a convention, uh, something that we uh, have in our minds, this idea of shopping trolley. It doesn't exist in reality. And it's the same with uh, the five aspects of existence. We think there is a being in there. Somebody who owns them or somebody who is them or somebody who is uh, somehow outside of them who owns them. But this is all our defining of something that in reality doesn't really exist. But also, Venerable you know, you, you also have to make the point that the parts themselves also don't really exist, right? So it's not just a shop and troll that doesn't exist and you can take it down to the individual parts, of course. Uh, so it kind of, uh, you know, it's, so it's, uh, it kind of goes down, you know, there's no final point where you reach some kind of uh, ultimate, uh, you know, substance or anything like that. Yeah. Right, like you could take the rear wheel apart as well and say that's not really a right. rear wheel, it's just a, a, a bearing with some rubber. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's true as well, yeah. Four elements, yeah. Which was, which was Nagarjuna's argument basically mm. yeah yeah I remember that argument. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so the idea in Buddhism is if you take everything apart you will not find any essence 
And now that's not really important for your shopping trolley, so don't go to the store this afternoon and take a shopping trolley apart. <laughs> but uh, it's about when we meditate, things start falling apart almost. It feels like it somehow. Things start disappearing, you know. And um, the more it disappears, you see it's not a self. And the idea of Buddhism is that there's no self in any of our experience. So you could, you could use that for stealing things, couldn't you? <laughs> just go there, take it apart, and then walk out, and they say, you're stealing it. I'm saying, it's just a collection of parts. I'm not stealing a trolley. Right. Well, that's in the Vinay, isn't it? The, 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 the bhikkhu will uh, start stealing honey drop by drop or something. Okay. Yeah, instead of a whole jar. Okay. Something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, but you have to have the... Uh Intention only to steal that drop, right? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah that's so if you start out with the intention <laughs> to steal the whole jar, yeah, then, yeah. Have a problem, that's yeah. it, right. Uh, okay, that's a bit of a technicality for the monastics. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah? So, life is without any you, without a self, without an essence. That is the idea here. It's just a process. And you can see that other things in life, you know, a flame, um, trees, a sun, anything is really... Just things coming into being and disappearing again. So this is how we might usually think of life. Uh, there's form, feeling, perception, will, consciousness. A, you can divide life in other ways. This is just one way that the Buddha did it. And we think, oh, all these feelings, I experience these feelings. That's me who feels things. It's uh, my will, it's my choices that I make. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, Sunyo's decision to make these slides. <laughs> uh, and then you think it's consciousness, that's who I am. I am the one who looks at life from within. That is the misperception. Because in reality, it's just like this. There's no being inside, it's just these five aggregates. And, and even inside of them, there is no essence. And when these five aggregates disappear, fade away, therefore, you cannot say that any being is destroyed. Just like you cannot say that the flame is, dis is destroyed. That is the idea behind that metaphor as well. And you, I've got some more about this, but uh, it's a good moment if any of you have anything to add, Pantes. I have nothing to add. Yeah, okay, so there was a big argument in the 20th century about Nibbana and not-self, right? And uh, one of the things that sort of came out of this argument was that, okay, so, so some people were saying Nibbana is a self, right? So there was like uh, Carol oh, okay. Rhys Davis and people like that. And then the, 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 the kind of the more kind of abidamically minded, especially the German monks like Nyanaponika and Nyanatiloka and so on, sort of countered that. And they said, no, counterpoint, Nibbana is not self. Okay? And they pointed to Sabbe Dhamma Anatta, all things are not self. Right? Fine. But curiously enough, though, there's nowhere in the suttas that actually talks about Nibbana as not self. And the only, there is one place where you find it, it's in the Parivara, which is quite a bit of a later text. And there was a really nice contribution to that by uh, the monk um, Kaminda, I think it was Kaminda. Yeah, he was at Vajirarama uh, at the time. And uh, one of the things he pointed out was that anatta is always like contemplating sabbe dhamma anatta. 
atanibindati dukhe. So when you see all things are not self, then you become nibida for dukkha and you turn away from it and so on. So he sort of pointed out that the way that anatta is talked about in the suttas was as a contemplation that was leading to liberation from suffering rather than being a characteristic of nibbana as such. Yeah? So I thought it was a really interesting kind of point that he was kind of sidestepping both of those you know, those opposing camps, Nibbana is self, Nibbana is not self. Actually, not self is talking about something different. It's actually talking about the path to Nibbana rather than a characteristic of Nibbana per se. Is that, what do you think? Well, I, I think to be not self, you have to, it has to be a, a phenomenon in the first place. It has to be something that you can label as not self or self. And, and okay. uh, if there's no phenomena, how can you, how can you have non-self? So if right. Nibbana is extinguishment, then it doesn't make any sense to attached these kind of concepts to it. Right, yeah. So, I mean, it's yeah. clearly not a self, right? Right, but it's not... Right. not yeah, but it's but not is, a, it, is that what the yeah. Buddha was mm. talking about when he talked about not self? Is, yeah. yeah. So I, thought, I just thought it was an interesting perspective on that, yeah. I don't know if you... Uh, I, maybe I'm an Abhidhamist then, because I think that it means, um, when it says Sabhidhamma Anatta, it means all things, including Nibbana, are without a self. And it's not like... Before Nibbana, before Parinibbana, you have a, you don't have a self, and then when you Parinibbana, you suddenly there is a self. But that's not what they're saying. No, that's not what the, what they say in the suttas. You mean? No, it was what, no one, no one's saying that. No, but that's my argument. Okay. That, so, it's to me it seems to be saying that even after Parinibbana, uh -huh. there's still no self. Right, right, right. That's why it's a sabbe dhamma anatta because it's everything is without a self, even. Um, the unconditioned, right? the, the disappearance of things is still without a self. Yeah. That's how I've always looked at yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. okay. But uh, I do agree that anatta is not just a um, philosophical idea, it is also taught as a reflection as well, and that's very important actually. Yeah. Uh, to think about it not just as an abstract idea. And that's always also, I must say, I was a little bit hesitant to speak about anatta because sometimes we, we talk about suffering and impermanence and that's like kind of things you can sort of feel, you know, you feel suffering in your life, you feel impermanence in your life so you can relate to it. Then we, then we teach anatta. I have seen people then, they don't really relate to it, they start really intellectualizing it and especially when they get given some meditation instructions that I would not give, then they start really... Uh, uh, disassociating in an unhealthy way. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's a really good point, and that's something I also like. Um, you know, just just cautious about when teaching not self. You know, just to sort of uh, bring it across. Bhante Gunaratna told a really nice story about that when he was in Perth well, twenty years ago now. Uh, and he, anyway, he said he wrote a, an article about not self. And he gave it to a friend of his to read and give him feedback. And uh, after a couple of months, he hadn't heard anything back from his friend. And so, you know, they were going for a walk one day. And as you know, Bhante Ji likes, loves to go for a walks. So he'd go for a walk. And as they were going for the walk, he said, oh, oh, by the way, you didn't happen to get a chance to have a look at that paper I wrote, did you? And the, the, his friend said, oh, look, Bhante, I have to confess. I opened up that paper. I looked at it. I saw the word not self. And I just 
was so horrified I threw it in the bin and I couldn't read anything more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you're like that, then that's why I said plug your ears if you want to. Uh. Anyway, these teachings of non-self can be very inspirational as well, actually, because um, I'll, I'll show you in a little bit with slides as well, but the idea of not having a self also opens us up for compassion and kindness. And when you lose your sense of self, you become less selfless in two ways, you, less of a sense of self, but also less selfless as an egoistic, like uh, possessive and stuff. So it's actually a very intri uh, intrinsic part of the Buddha's teachings. It combines with all these Brahma Viharas and stuff as well. But that's not what I want to talk about. Today I want to talk about liberation of, from identification, liberation from this wrong notion that you are some being inside of you who owns your life or who controls your life. And this is also a sense of liberation if you can let go of that sense of self. We're so attached to it, we think, oh, it's good to have a sense of self, I can control everything, I can uh, um, decide what to do and I enjoy things, but it's actually also suffering the sense of self and to be free from it is a, also a liberation in the suttas. When you have no more self-identification, ahankara, possessiveness, mamankara, or tendency to conceit with respect to this conscious body and all external objects, when you attain the liberation of the mind, the liberation through understanding, those are the two that Ajahn Brahmali talked about before. When there is no more self-identification, possessiveness, and tendency to conceit, then you are called a mendicant who cut off craving and untied the chains or fetish, who by correctly comprehending conceit put an end to suffering. Okay, that's a very dense passage, but I like to read it out beforehand before I explain the parts, because otherwise you'll just be reading ahead while I'm, <laughs> while I'm explaining. So, you have self-identification, possessiveness, and tendency to conceit. It literally, ahankara means I-making, and sometimes it's translated like that. It means the mind creates the sense of I inside of it. So you, that's why I translated it self-identification. You think that you are an I. Possessiveness, mamankara, is literally mind-making. Uh, so it means you think that things are yours. Your body is yours. Your mind is yours. Your, uh, your partner is yours, maybe. Uh, your, uh, your house is yours. Or tendency to conceit. Conceit in English means to think you're better than somebody else, but in the Buddha extended that concept to have all, all kinds of self ideas uh, in, in, ingrained in it. Also to think you're worse or that you think you're the same or that you think you are. That is also a conceit in the Buddha, Buddhist sense of the word. And if you have that re respect to this conscious body, that just means your person and all external objects, like stuff in the world. If you don't have that anymore, then you attain liberation of the mind, and the liberation from this sense of self. And then you, by correctly comprehending conceit or the sense of self, you put an end to suffering. So this is the concept of anatta seen from the perspective of liberation. There's also something to be liberated from the sense of a self. What else have we got here? Okay, so 
Renunciants or Brahmins would take various things to be their self. They all take the five taken up aspects of existence, Upadanakandas, to be their selves or certain ones among them. This is what I said before. Yeah, I draw this picture with the five aspects of existence and the, then the smiley face in the middle saying, this is how you identify with these things. How we identify and we think we are these things. This is what it says here. Yeah, they take these five things to be their self. We think we are the awareness or the choices and so forth. An unlearned ordinary person thinks, I am, I am this, I will be, I won't be. When ignorance faded away and knowledge has arisen, they no longer think, I am, I am this, I will be, I won't be. Literally those thoughts don't happen anymore in enlightened beings. They don't think, oh, I am attending the Dhamma talk or... Uh, I will have blah, blah, blah for lunch. <laughs> they don't have those ideas anymore because they completely seen through the absence of any I or self. Maybe a little bit too many suttas, but I just got inspired by all these suttas. <laughs> Sometimes I just like to let the Buddha talk uh, instead of me. So, I am is an elaboration or um, a proliferation of pancha. Why? Because you are adding something to life that doesn't exist. If you think I am, that I is just an illusion. It's a uh, proliferation or elaboration beyond what actually exists. Yeah? Just like the, uh, the, the, the shopping trolley idea. Yeah? The shop, there are only parts. There's not really like a shopping trolley as such. I am this, I will be, I won't be. They are all elaborations. Elaboration or... Uh, proliferation, is a disease, a tumor, an arrow. Therefore, you should train your minds to become free from elaboration. Now, there the Buddha was saying, not just the sense of self is an illusion, but it's also a disease, an arrow. It's suffering as well. And if you continue in that sutta, it also says, I am is a disturbance, an agitation. It's something that is not... It's, it's suffering. You know, so that's the best way to put it. And you might be able to relate to that to some extent. When your mind becomes really peaceful, and maybe you can't relate, but then this sense of self comes back. And that actually feels like suffering. And you're like, ah, that stupid sense of self it just creates su suffering itself in the mind, actually. Don't know really how else to put it, but that is what the Buddha is saying there as well. So, that is the problem with the sense of self. Now, the Buddha did not only talk about the problem, but also about how to eliminate the problem, of course. And there's many suttas that talk about reflecting on anatta, on the absence of a self, like, of course, the anatta lakana sutta. We've mentioned a few suttas here and there before. But there's also a very famous one, which is the Bahiya Sutta. Is it called the Bahia Sutta? Uh, no. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Ba Bahia Sutta. Bahia Sutta. Vedana. Bahia, yes. Yeah. Anyway, it's often called the Bahia Sutta, whether that's the actual title or not. In that, this is the Buddha speaking. Bahia, in that case, if you want to become enlightened, basically, you should train yourself like this. In the scene, there shall be only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the thought, only the thought. 
and in the cognized, only the cognized. That's how you should train yourself. Now, what does this mean? In the scene, only the scene. What do you think that means? So, sense restraint, that's what basically what you think it, it refers to, and it does uh, as well. I think there's also a deeper idea though. Uh, anybody else has something to add? Yeah, it's not making yellow smiley <laughs> inside. Uh, Nicholas. Yeah, okay. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't need to repeat for the microphone. So, yeah, somebody said here, not create the smiley inside. And, it, and th by that, he, he meant not create that sense of self, you know, the smiley that I drew inside of the five aggregates. Yeah. So, in the scene, only the scene means no seer. It's only seeing, only a process of seeing. And there's sights that are seen, but there's nobody inside who sees them. So only the seen, not the seer. Likewise, in the heard, only the heard. In the thought, only the thought. And in the cognized, in awareness or in consciousness, only the cognized, only consciousness, and not somebody who is conscious. That is how you should train yourself. And this is very deep Dhamma ideas. And as I said before, when people sometimes reflect upon these, to intellectually, they disassociate unhealthily. So you have to do this carefully. And um, um, yeah, to do it carefully, you'll find some peace to be able to dissociate from all these sense experiences and from the mind as well, the cognized as well. That's a little bit of a feedback mechanism you can maybe use to see if you're doing things correctly. Does it actually lead to more peace and happiness as well? and not to more distress, if it leads to more di distress, then don't do these kind of contemplations. But the, the Buddha continues. When, for you, in the scene, there is only the scene, so no self, only seeing, only the process of sight. In the heard, only the heard. In the thought, only the thought. And in the cognized, only the cognized. Then, as two things will happen, you, won't accompany that. To me that means the sense of self won't be with those things anymore, with those sights and hearing and, and thoughts. And if you do not accompany that, if there's no sense of self, then you will not be there anymore. You will be not in those things anymore. If you are not there, you will not be here, which means in this life, or you will not be reborn in this life, you will not be reborn in another world or in between the two. That is just the end of suffering. There's a lot of ideas here which people argue a lot about and I don't know how much I want to address them right now, but in between the two basically I take to mean that you will not be uh, 
reborn in, in this world or another world, or you don't exist in between lives. This is the idea that there is some sort of time between lives. Yeah, that is the in-between, the two. So basically it's saying Arahants will not be reborn. That's basically what that means, the whole statement. Yeah, not here, there, or in between the two. That means no more rebirth, and they um, stop existing, basically. Yeah, so what do you think it will be like to become enlightened? <laughs> I just want, can I make just one comment, Venerable uh, Sunya? This is the, uh, the word that you translate either as uh, elaboration or proliferation, which obviously is the word papancha. Or is it manjana? Maybe it's manjana. Papancha, okay. So it's two words in the suttas that have a roughly similar meaning, manjana and papancha, which, uh, and they kind of point to the same thing. And this was a question actually I brought up with Venom Bikibodi, because when he was doing his translations, he suggested elaboration himself. And I, I thought it's not, I, my point was that it's not such perhaps the ideal translation, because elaboration just usually means an explanation of something. It means like a vibanga, an analysis very often. So you elaborate in a certain way. It is not necessarily a negative thing here. But papancha is always negative. It's, it's, it's like a aimless adding on, an aimless, um, you know, keep adding to something without any direction, any purpose, any kind of meaning. Yeah. And proliferation is a word which kind of means a plant kind of growing aimlessly in various directions. It proliferates itself, right? The plant kind of moving on without any sense of purpose. It's just an addition to things. Uh, so I made the point that I think uh, papancha, the word itself, has more the sense of aimlessness or purposelessness. It's adding things which aren't there. Actually, it's worse than aimless. It's actually delusion. Uh, so it, is, it has a very negative uh, uh, connotation to it. Uh. Oh, Mara, here you go. That's a good point, actually, that elaboration can also mean explanation. And I actually didn't really think about that. The reason I translate words differently sometimes is sometimes just for the sake of being different, because it lets you look at things from a different perspective. But also, in this case, proliferation it never really meant anything to me by itself as a word uh, in, in context. But that may be because I'm not native English, but when I first read it, like proliferation, what do you mean? I know proliferation is like expansion of stuff, but I didn't connect it to the idea that this is like something that happens inside the mind. You, you could compare it to a plant. Okay, but yeah. I, I didn't really make that connection myself in, with proliferation, that it means a mental adding on to things. Instead of, yeah. It's a bit artificial, maybe. Yeah, like what do they call it? Buddhist, uh, hybrid. Buddhist hybrid English, yes. Yeah, and some sometimes this same things with conceit maybe. Anyway, my question: <coughs> What do you think it will be like to be enlightened? Ryan. Yeah, yeah, we can do without microphone maybe. Oh, I'll focus on Um, is it working? Yes? No. No. <laughs> Hello. Hey. Hello. Yes. There's a word that I've been seeing recently 
uh, Holland, um, I think after Koister, uh, that's not the right pronunciation, he coined this word and it is a whole thing which is simultaneously a part of another whole thing. So a whole letter is a part of a whole word, a whole word is a part of a whole sentence. I think this is what you're trying to explain with the lighter scenario, how you have the liquid methane, uh, methanol, sorry, in, inside there, which combines with the spark, which then joins the oxygen and you have the flame. Now, um, as a human being, we're, we are a Holland because we are a whole self, a whole consciousness, which is simultaneously part of the only whole uh, existence. Is, is, is this making sense? Am I on the right track? Mm, that's not what I try to say. Uh, no, uh, not that we are like part of a larger whole, but that there is no real essence inside of us. Maybe you could look at it from that perspective as well. Maybe we're just talking past one another a little bit. But I want to make sure that I'm not getting the idea that it's all like one consciousness or something. That That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do questions later. I just wanted to have a little bit of to, for you to think about this. I got a little bit of feeling that I'm not really relating to people with this talk, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like there's a little bit of uh, distance between us uh, when I'm talking about this. That's why I'm struggling a little bit. But um, why I'm trying to say, why, why, why I said, what do you think it will be like to be enlightened? And this is for me one of the, the way I interpret it, one of the coolest phrases in the suttas. Tvang na tata, you will not be there. Really? It's Tvang na tata in the Bahia And that means to me that enlightenment happens, but not you don't go there, you disappear. Enlightenment happens despite of you. It's when you stop being, when you don't accompany that, all these experiences, then you cease to be. So enlightenment, you don't get anything out of it. Ajahn Chah apparently used to say very often, did you come here to this monastery to die? When people came to ordain. And he did not mean, did you come here to literally die physically, but did you come here to let this sense of self die. Yeah. That, that, that question works, except for when the Australian Anagarika came. He said, did you come here to die? He said, no, I came here yesterday, mate. <laughs> Sorry, what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get it. He said, did you come here to die? No, I came here yesterday, mate. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. True story. Apparently so. So, now what I'm trying to say here is, from the, when you have a sense of self, you're not still enlightened, then from that perspective, enlightenment will just be disappearance. So from the perspective of a self, there will not be any difference between Nibbana and Parinibbana in a sense. What you imagine Parinibbana will be, if you understand it as how we thought it, that's in a sense what it will sort of 
feel like when you reach no normal Nibbana, the enlightenment. And I think that's one of the reasons why these terms are sometimes used interchangeably as well. And sometimes not clear which extinguishment the Buddha is talking about in the suttas because they're so closely related. Just to make a real brief point, we should, we should take a break in a moment, but I'm almost to my last slide, so I'll just continue. To make a brief point that this is about contemplating anatta, the, the absence of a self, and not just about sense restraint, is when you compare this to the Upanishads, you see almost the exact same quote, but then it is actually about finding a self. Yeah? This is Jnanavokya, the sage from the Upanishads, the Brahminic sage. You can't see the seer who does the seeing. You can't hear the hearer who does the hearing. You can't think of the thinker who does the thinking. And you can't cognize the cognizer who does the cognizing. The self within all is this self of yours. And that is who you are. So in the Upanishadic religion, they had this idea that there is a seer inside of you, the self that is within all, that is the self of you. And you can see how so closely related the Buddha's teachings are. He's basically just saying the same thing, but taking the self out. Yeah? So instead of a seer within the seeing, he says it's just only seeing, no seer. Yeah? And to me, it's kind of inspiring when you see how the Buddha was really um, replying to people's actual ideas. He wasn't just giving abstract philosophical ideas, but actually addressing people's views directly and turning them around. Now, this idea of extinguishment and disappearance, as I said before, I was warned, you might scare people off a bit <laughs> with that. I don't think so, but to and on a happy note, <laughs> I think extinguishment is very happy as well, but so happy the enlightened ones, the Arahants. No craving can be found in them. The conceit I am is destroyed. Yeah, this idea that they are somebody, a self, is destroyed. The net of delusion cut through. Delusion meaning not seeing reality um, accurately. No longer can they be stirred. Their minds are clear. They don't stick to the worlds. Holy are they, undefiled. They do not waver in discrimination, are freed from future life, are freed from rebirth. They reach the stage of the tamed, are victorious in the world. Above, below, in between, no delight is found in them. So basically above, below, in between means anywhere. Yeah. No delight is found in them and for anything. They roar their lion's roar. The awake, the enlightened one, the Buddha, are the best in the world. So would you like to be victorious and roar a lion's roar? Be so happy and your mind is clear. You can no longer be stirred and you're freed from rebirth. Does that sound like a good idea? All right. So that is the point that we try to make in this workshop, that liberation is great. <laughs> All right. Shall okay. we do maybe five minutes meditation or? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah.
Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think we we can take a few short questions. Over here, like, hi. Can we start with this over here? Yeah. Yeah. So many hands are up. Now. Hi. Uh, thanks, uh, Ajahn Sunyo. I, I just want to say, actually, I thought it was pretty clear what you were saying. Oh, uh, okay. I really like the smiley face disappearing idea. That's pretty clear to me. Uh, what I wanted to say is in the Bahia Sutra, and the reason why I think this is very confusing, even in the Buddha's own words, and perhaps this has to do with the translation, is he says, he's essentially saying that the smiley face will disappear, if I can say that, but then he uses the word you in a different way. He says, okay, you Bahia, you are not there. But I mean, he's just said that there isn't a self. So how can you use the word you for a self? So the word you is being used in two senses. And this is part of the problem why it's really difficult to get what's happening here. So it, it would be better if, I don't want to criticize the Buddha, but if he said, if you are not there, he should have said maybe if the non-you is not there. You, you just need a different name for the you, which is the you without the self inside you. Do you know what I'm saying? It's all right, because I'm around sort of central, so I'll just take that bit out, shall I? Yeah. <laughs> Fine. So I guess the question is, <laughs> that, that you there, <laughs> is it the same you, or does he sometimes use you in two different ways? And I guess related to this is, if you don't have a you inside you, what is it? Yeah, that okay. I, compassion that is I, I get your feeling. question. Got it's it. a good question. Um, but the Buddha also had to speak in normal language as well. If he always would speak in uh, what they call ultimate truth language, then uh, that would be very uh, unrelatable. And there's also a little verse somewhere in the suttas that says that enlightened beings, they still use the words I am and they are, but only as mere conventions. So the Buddha here is speaking like conventionally, yeah? and he's trying to uh, challenge the sense of self of Bahia by re referring to this sense of you that he has, but that doesn't actually uh, in no real you there. Yeah? When I speak and I say, ah, that's uh, what's your name? What's your name? <laughs> All right, his aggregates are called Dylan, he says. Right. But when I say, what is your name, you view it refers to some, something when I ask that, uh, I suppose, anyway. And that is the same thing the Buddha is doing here. He's pointing to that sense of self that Bahia still has, that you. And Bahia would think, you, yeah, I, I, you won't be there. I won't be. And yeah, so he's challenging that sense of self. He's not speaking in like an absolute uh, sense of aggregates kind of language. The Buddha very rarely spoke in that kind of a very uh, absolute language, actually. Yeah. More questions? Yeah. Um, 
I think a useful analogy might be to think about artificial intelligence, which is very topical at the moment, because we've got beings who have been created who can hold, apparently, hold a conversation on just about anything. And um, so the experts are now concerned that such beings might become self-aware. And then you'd have beings who think they're real people, only they're not. And I'm suddenly reminded of myself. <laughs> Is this uh, like a confession? <laughs> are, you, are you actually a artificially intelligent entity? Or you wouldn't know? I mean, if you, if you ask ChatGPT that, uh, ChatGPT will say, oh, I'm only a, a large language model and I don't possess intelligence or consciousness. Uh, but of course, he would say that, wouldn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so if he really was conscious, maybe they wouldn't want to let us know. Yeah. Right? Because if we thought they were really conscious, then we, they'd be even scarier than they are. So they want to convince us that they're not conscious. That's even scarier still. Right? Yeah. There's no end to the rabbit hole of paranoia that you can get down. But look, but one of the things about that, I mean, just to sort of take that idea seriously just for a moment, if I may, is that um, uh, the, the, from the Buddhist point of view, uh, consciousness has always been something which is fundamentally conditioned. That's the kind of the essence of the Buddha's take on consciousness. Is it's not some kind of uh, distinct metaphysical property or phenomenon which has nothing to do with the rest of creation or the rest of the universe. So uh, consciousness persists and is generated and created within this world of phenomena as you know one of the aspects of conditionality as we experience it. Uh, and so from that point of view, the idea, which I think is the point you were making, was that uh, the idea of artificial intelligence or so on uh, is, is, is still a, is kind of within the realm of possibility. I mean, to, to, to put it by way of contrast, like say from a Christian point of view, you would say we're endowed with a soul, which is a unique gift from God. And if a computer doesn't have a soul, then it can't be conscious. Whereas from a Buddhist point of view, we don't really think that way. So we would think that if a computer has, if there is sufficient conditions within that computer for it to be conscious, then it would be conscious. Yeah? Uh, we actually were discussing that in our Tesla on the way down here because none of us can escape these things. Anyway, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, per my personal feeling is that um, there's no road from here to there. That, that what we are doing today with computers has nothing to do with consciousness. And you won't make a faster computer with a bigger AI model and suddenly consciousness will pop out of the other end. Right? That's not how anything is going to work. So I personally would think that there's not um, <clears throat> I don't have any problem in principle with the theoretical idea that they maybe have an artificial intelligent machine of some kind, but I don't think that what we're doing is on a kind of linear road towards creating that, which is what a lot of the futurists think. Um, anyway. Um, Bhante, uh, from my uh, listenings to uh, some of the suttas, um, I uh, interpret that the Buddha's quite uh, been careful on how and to whom he talks about anatta um, 
to the point that sometimes he even refused to answer questions. And when Venerable Ananda asked why he did that, he said um, he's also already got uh, a strong view of self. Now, adding a view of non-self on top of that is not going to help him. So for the rest of us, what he did was um, gave us a set of reflections um, based on um, um, anicca. So basically, chakun nichangwa, anichangwa, and through that path, seeing uh, that the sense of self was not correct. So to break down the sense of self through that uh, set of reflections. So I suppose the question is, once that sense of self is broken down through a path of reflections like that, does it make sense for to even question whether uh, Nibbana is self or not self? Right, thank you for that question. Can I answer it? Yeah. So you were yeah, referring to a sutta where the Buddha refused to say, say to a certain person that uh, of there being no self. And um, that is because of that specific person, the Buddha says, would be very confused yes. and think he would be annihilated, yes. basically. And that is also yeah, why it's hard to talk about these topics to a general audience. People are at different places in their practice. People relate to these things differently. And yeah, that's why I, I felt I struggled a bit. So I'm happy some people said that it did came across anyway. So to answer your question, um, what was it again? <laughs> question. So once the sense of self is broken down, right, okay, does it yeah, make yeah. sense to even ask the question of whether Nibbana is self or non-self? Yeah, so I would say no. Because you see there is no self in anything. And that's why I said before, uh, everything is without a self. Yeah, if you see that when all things come to an end, uh, basically you see anicca really deeply by seeing everything stopping, then there is no more room for itself because everything has been, uh, been seen through. Yeah, so then you won't think, um, well, maybe the five aggregates are not a cell, but uh, maybe Nibbana is a cell. Uh, you won't think like that because the five aggregates, they encompass all of existence, yeah? mm -hmm. especially like consciousness. Uh, if consciousness is without a self, what is left if consciousness ceases, right? Yeah. Does that answer Second. your question? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, okay. I just want to quick note that the Buddha said that to Ananda, but it was not Ananda who would be confused. It was a, a wanderer called Vachagota who throughout the suttas again and again comes to the Buddha and asks questions about uh, Anatta and he does not understand what happens to the Tathagata after death. There's like a whole... Um, whole vaga in the Sanyutta Nikaya, just, just about him and his questions. So in, at some point, that's how I interpret it anyway, at some point the Buddha was, yeah, if I explain him again, he will just be confused, he just doesn't get it. So maybe it's time to teach him something else. <laughs> yeah. Shall, shall we allow, I think, Maslava to do a few things before we go? Because we can carry on a little bit longer, because Ajahn Brahma is going to look after the uh, Pradhan over there. So, yeah.
Thank you, Venerable. Thank you, uh, the other Venerable. And um, <clears throat> so what I would like to do is to do just a, a, a little bit of a reading and reflection uh, as a primer for your discussion after Woods. At 12, you're going to have a discussion, 12 to 12.30, is that right? Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question, and you're going to have to figure out the answer to that during that discussion se session. Is that okay? Yes? Everyone's happy with that? You all trust me? No. <laughs> Thank you. A few, I'm looking for around who knows me. Okay, very good. Okay, excellent. Uh, so, first of all, uh, as a bit of background for this question. So we're talking about right liberation. All right, uh, and we've heard uh, so many different perspectives about right liberation. Essentially, we're talking about arahantship and so on. Now, this in the um, uh, 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 Anguttara eight point nineteen, the Paharada Sutta, the Buddha said that the ocean has just one taste: the taste of salt. Uh, and in the same way, the Dhamma has just one taste, the taste of freedom. Yeah? Beautiful statement, right? Just one taste, rasa, one taste, the taste of liberation. So we're all on the same page here, are we? The Dhamma has just one taste, the taste of freedom, is that right? The taste of liberation, yes? That means everything we find in the Dhamma has that flavor of liberation. Yes? So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read you a passage and then I'm going to leave you with that passage and you're going to tell me, you're going to go away and discuss how this particular passage has the flavour of liberation. Okay? And then you can come back after the discussion when we come back this afternoon and you can give us your answers. Alright? Does that sound reasonable? Everyone's looking just a little bit nervous, I don't know why. <laughs> so, okay, let me read the passage for you now. So this is a poem, and it's in Diganikaya number 21. And I'll just read the poem for you without giving any context. And you're going to have to tell me how this is, has the flavour of liberation. O Bada Suryavachasa, my darling sunshine. I pay homage to your father, Timbaru, through whom was born a lady so fine to fill me with a joy I never knew. As sweet as a breeze to one who's sweating, or when thirsty, a sweet and cooling drink. So dear to you, so dear are you, Angirasi, to me, just like the teaching, just like the Dhamma is to all the saints. Like a cure when you've been struck by fever dire or food to ease the hunger pain. Come on, Bhadda, please put out my fire. Quench me like water on a flame. As elephants burning in the heat of summer sink down in a lotus pond to rest, so cool, full of petals and of pollen, that's how I would plunge into your breast. Like elephants bursting bonds in rutting season, beating off the pricks of lance and pikes, I just don't understand what is the reason I'm so crazy for your shapely thighs. For you, my heart is full of passion. I'm in a besotted state of mind. There's no going back. I'm just not able. I'm like a fish that's hooked up on the line. 
Come on, my bud, hold me, fair of thighs. Embrace me with your so bashful eyes. Take me in your arms, my lovely lady. That's all I'd ever want or could desire. Ah, then my desire was such a small thing, my sweet, with your curling wavy hair. And now, like to arahants an offering, it's grown so very much from there. Whatever the merit I have forged by giving to such perfected beings, may that, may my altogether gorgeous, ripen in togetherness with you. Whatever the merit I have forged in this vast territory, may that, my altogether gorgeous, ripen in togetherness with you. As the Sakyan absorbed did meditate at one alert and mindful to the sage seeking the deathless state, so I, O oh my sunshine, seek for you. And just like the sage would delight once he had awakened to the truth, so I would delight my fair fine lady were I to become one with you. If Saka were to grant me one wish as lord of the thirty and three, my Bhadda, you're all that I could wish for. So strong is the love in me. Like a freshly blossoming sal tree is your father, my lady so wise. I pay homage to he, bowing humbly, whose daughter is of such a kind. <laughs> we all agreed, didn't we? Did we not agree that the Dhamma has one flavor, the flavor of liberation? Could you hear the flavor of liberation in those verses? Straight out of the Pali Canon. Don't blame me, okay? Okay, I'm just, it's just straight out of the Pali Canon. So, you're going, this is in Deegan Nikai number 21. If you want to refer to it, you can go to Sutta Central, DN21, and check it on your phone, and uh, have a discussion, and see how that relates to the idea of liberation. And we'll see what answers you're going to come up with. Okay? I'm happy I don't have to be part of that discussion. <laughs> no, let's, let's carry on a bit more. We can carry on at least about 10, 10 15 minutes. Yeah, do, do some other questions if you like. Yeah, that's, ah. that's good as a background. Yeah, oh. it's nice. Give it a bit more time. Okay. Yeah. Should I give some more background to that passage before sure. we go? Why not? Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure how much to say without sort of giving the answer away. <laughs> but just to give a little bit of background, so that, those verses were spoken by the Gandhabha Panchasika. And uh, the story goes that uh, in those days that Saka, the king of the gods, wanted to come to see the Buddha. But he was a bit, how do I put this? Um, I think he was a bit nervous about going to see the Buddha. Saka was kind of a war god, all right? He liked to go around and, like, kill things. So his encounter with the Dhamma was the story of how he was reformed and how he gave up his, uh, his kind of warrior ethos. Uh, and in fact, that was in one of the uh, suttas which you were just quoting from. Like you didn't mention the bit with Saka in it, but had the idea that that uh, Saka was at war with Wepachiti, with the Asuras, and then he captured Wepachiti. And then when, when Wepachiti thought, oh, the gods are good and the Asuras are bad, 
then his mind was freed. And when he thought the gods were bad and the Asuras were good, then his mind was trapped. So subtle was the, 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 the bondage that he had. So this is Saka's journey. Yeah? And since we're talking about liberation, he talks about the tanha uh, vimuti, the liberation from craving. And this, in fact, is one of the thoughts, one of the uh, ideas discussed with Saka elsewhere in the suttas. So Saka's nervous about approaching the Buddha. And so, strangely, it would appear, he asks Panchasika to go and break the ice for him. Panchasika goes down, taking his guitar, approaches the Buddha, who's sitting alone in meditation in a cave, and sings this song to him. Why, though? Now, I believe, I believe, and I may be wrong, but I believe that two and a half thousand years of Buddhism, no one's actually quite understood why that is so. Why is there a love song? Why is there an erotic love song in the suttas? What is it doing there? Right? <laughs> what does it have to do with the taste of freedom? Yeah? Is this something that they just put in there that doesn't really actually have anything to do with the Dhamma? Or does it really contain some kind of meaning that maybe we're not really grasping? What is that story that this text is telling? So anyway. <laughs> Hopefully that will be a fun discussion for you guys after at 12 o'clock, right? 12 o'clock, yeah. So I have something to eat first. All right? Okay. Okay, so we're going to go. We will see you back here a bit later on. Good. No, no, it's, it's, I, excellent. I'm glad I, I'm glad I agreed, actually. Yeah.